welcome to the Intellectual Freedom Podcast. Here we analyze politics, culture, technology, and society at large through the lens of critical thinking and open-mindedness, not demagoguery and partisan hyperbole. I'm Dr. David Hopkins, Humanities Professor, your host and guide. So without further delay, let's get started. It was back in January of this year, pre-COVID, and in a discussion in class, a student rather bluntly asked this question. Why are the candidates we get to choose for president so dumb, old, and pathetic? Ouch. Well, that's probably a little bit harsh, a little bit over-direct, and maybe also over-simplistic. Maybe. At least there's just a little bit more. However, the question is a very valid one for many Americans in many different elections. When our country, we have over 350 million people, how in the world do we get the candidates that we get? Many, myself included, wonder why and where are the brilliant minds that are not running for political office? We know in America we have some incredible, intellectually superior, business-savvy critical thinking leaders across all kinds of industries. We just do, yet they don't run for office. And if we're honest, most people, most of the time, wish and hope for better candidates. We have all been there voting for that quote-unquote least worst candidate. As I look out at America and the American political system today, I don't like what I see. The chance for greatness in getting a true leader is slim, regardless of the age, the country, or the situation. The law of averages is actually against it. The law of averages is this mathematical belief that a particular outcome or event will, over certain periods of time, occur at a frequency that is similar to its probability. This law of averages says... We will most frequently get average to below average politicians. You know, despite what every obituary reads when someone dies, most people, most of the time, if we're honest, they lead very mundane and self-absorbed lives. It's just true. Most people are compliant to norms. They follow the rules as they're told to follow them. They're scared to be bold or to be different. And it's just a lot easier to just be part of the mass or the herd. And most are just, in all honesty, content to just being okay. Most look to others to lead them, to guide them, to direct them, and and celebrate the glory of their team winning a political battle or an election. And they live this vicariously, and they believe beyond certainty that when their team wins, whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans, they, in essence, win too. Most people, most of the time, limit their capacity for success or failure to external forces, especially in politics. But it's not always just limited to politics, but life in general. This is this all-too-human characteristic doesn't stop at, say, a teacher or a bus driver or a machinist, but it makes its way into the local, state, federal governments and the political body. Most people, politicians included, most of the time are comfortable being comfortable. If I had to describe the spirit of most American politicians, 
I would sadly say that spirit is timid, imitative, mean-spirited, and tamed to the whims of the political party. Their despicable fake outrage, their anger, and that nasty language they throw at each other comes across like a child troll keyboard warrior typing nasty comments on Facebook or a discussion forum. The private and public desire for money and power makes the political air we breathe. It's toxic. The political parties of this country train new politicians and in reality the mind of this country to aim at very low objects. As time and time again, the the lies, the deceit, the submission of politicians to the party mantra, they eat up and erode the country. There's no true work with high purpose or high goals for most who go into politics. Most are showy pseudo-intellects and pseudo-public servants of the people. I do believe many new politicians, they get in the game of politics with noble ideals for change and for serving the people. Their goals are true and they're honest, but then they get to that cancerous hell known as Washington, D.C., and there they find the ugly, all-powerful political parties and all those dreams or ideals of serving the people. They get shattered pretty quickly by the party. The party puts power, money, politics above all else. They're hindered from action by the party, And really, at the end, they are left with only a couple options. Number one, after they see how disgustingly toxic that environment is in Washington, D.C., they leave in disgust or they leave only after one or two terms. Or two, they develop that herd mentality required to survive for the long term in this toxic swamp known as Washington, D.C. The abandoning of values is a natural one sadly as humans by nature they tend to seek money or power or both and the spoils of the office of being a politician become a goal in and of itself and why not when the bar is lowered to keeping power as a primary objective and they aspire to nothing more than keeping their seat through the next election cycle Through this indoctrination by the political party, they become convinced power and money are ultimately the highest power. And in a perverse way, they come to believe their own lies that staying in power at all costs is, quote, how I'm going to help the people. Then they become kind of like the person caught in an average job. You know, the, the person who gets a job, they didn't really like it for 20 or 30 years, and but they kept on doing it anyway. And they slowly became numb to the job because it paid the bills. A politician can convince themselves they are serving the people and become numb to the truth that their conformity to the party was the worst thing they could have done for the people as they abandoning their morals, ethics, and their very purpose and passion to serve becomes nothing more than holding that seat. Do I personally know any politicians to make this assessment? No, I do not. Have I ever been a politician? No, no way, no how, impossible. So what drives me to this conclusion and this rather 
brutal analysis, you may ask. Well, in the humanities, I've been trained to look at what has been created. It doesn't matter whether it's philosophy, it's art, it's literature, it's music. What has, what was created? We're only trained to see the things that are done. What do I see from politicians as I look at the outcomes of what we have been getting over and over from election cycle to election cycle. I see debt, national debt, nearing $30 trillion and not one politician ever willing to take this on. When the Republicans are in power, the Democrats cry that it's just increasing the deficit, like when Trump did his tax plan. Now that Trump's probably going to be gone, all of a sudden now I hear Republicans in Congress saying, well, this stuff, Joe Biden, we got to be careful of the deficit. They're liars. None of them ever take care of the debt. Every one of these politicians, every president's been doubling this national debt for decade. Corruption everywhere constantly corruption scandals inability to ever work together even on obvious things like coronavirus relief packages the democrats want three and a half trillion the republicans want 500 million and nowhere in between do they ever negotiate when they know that they need to do something for those people that have been incredibly hurt by this situation yet both of them do nothing because neither one of them is going to give an inch on negotiation. I see partisan line voting on basically everything except for the most obvious, superficial, irrelevant things. Although, you know, right now, I'm not sure they could even pass a resolution these parties saying that puppies are nice and cute anymore. Probably couldn't even get that. I see adults speaking like children on the playground with their name calling and bickering back and forth. I see the insanely wealthy companies like Amazon, Walmart, Target making billions of dollars as they shut down small businesses everywhere and they get crushed. I mean, I could go on and on. I don't care any longer what politicians say. I only care what they do and get done. Words anymore mean absolutely nothing in the political environment that we now live. No word out of any politician means anything to me, only action. And since action almost never happens, I almost never give any stock to any Washington, D.C. politician or political hack anymore. But back to the question at hand, why? Why are we left with such inferior people in politics? It's an important question and it's a valid question. As we begin our discussion, there are probably some good people, some with extraordinary stories of what they've overcome in life and how they got into the position they are and how they got into politics. I, I don't doubt this. And there may be a few that fight valiantly to serve well, honestly, ethically, irregardless of what political party they're in. Yet the actions of the body political tell me they either won don't have the skill to execute real change or two, they are really just conformists putting on the mask like most of them. By the way, just as a side note, if a politician hears this, doubt they would listen to my podcast, but if they did, nothing ticks me off more than when one of these politicians refers to Washington, D.C. and politics in the third person as if they were not part of this ugly 
disgusting system. If you are a politician in D.C., you are responsible. First person, you. You are not a third-party observer. You are not a citizen. You were sent there, and you are part of the problem. Don't disassociate yourself. I hate when I hear things from a politician say something like, Well, the problem on this vote is all the Washington insiders are not going to let it pass. You are a Washington insider. You are in Congress. So stop referring to D.C. in the third person when it suits you politically. Just stop it. Okay, I had to get that one off my chest. Sorry, I went on a rant there, but I'm back. Finally. We get to the main points. I, I want to dispel also any rainbow and pony dream of the perfect leader swooping in to save the day. I don't I don't have any of that illusion either. Human beings are flawed, period. And to pretend otherwise is silly. No perfect president exists from George Washington as a slave owner to Bill Clinton and his sexual escapades to Richard Nixon and all his impeachment drama and pretty much any and all level of ethical pretzels these politicians put themselves in uh, through all the sexual deviances. The White House is not immune to any of it. Yet when we look at the intellectual prowess and the leadership of some of the early presidents from say Washington to Lincoln uh, through Kennedy to where we've been in recent history, it gets a little bit scary what has happened. The problem of that, what? These are the candidates I get to choose from? You got to be kidding me. This frustration doesn't stop at the top of the ballot either, sadly, but persists all the way down to the bottom at the local levels. Why? There has to be a reason. There has to be specific characteristics in America right now leading to this barren earth of rather empty-headed herd mentality partisans. So let's define hypothetically our ideal intellectual candidate. Let's assume a highly intelligent person who has the ability to deploy critical reasoning, which basically means they have the ability to actively and skillfully conceptualize, analyze, question, evaluate ideas and beliefs, regardless of any ideology or preconceived notions. And with this superior set of intellectual abilities, they would obviously have emotional IQ to show empathy towards others and listen effectively and seek out the best solutions in whatever situation they find themselves. They would also have to have humility and and understanding that they can't always have the right answers and are willing to consider alternatives not just platitudes as we hear from these idiots in DC right now, but they have this ability to reach the best solution for the betterment of society at large. And then let's say you would also, to have all that, you would need the courage to make hard decision in the face of critics from your own party and the other party because we know there would always be loudmouth partisan hacks, know-it-alls who sit on their couch, sit in their office, criticizing, mocking, tearing down. But despite all this, our intellectual and our our intellectually superior person and leader has this courage to make hard decisions when necessary. Sounds impossible, right, to find all these characters characteristics rolled up in one yeah probably but heck 
Let's just say we could get a president to show half of these abilities consistently or two thirds would be amazing. We would be well on our way to maybe the greatest president in the history of our country, I would think. So let's get into why we don't generally find these in our presidential candidates. Smart people, they understand something that goes on. The role of the president is actually way too limited to affect lasting change. You may say, no, 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 that's not true. We remember all our presidents in history books. And I, I'm not talking about fame I'm, or people remembering a name. I'm talking about the capacity of the president to make lasting changes in things they control. Intelligent people see this as a very limited position as president. I mean, of course, it's super high profile. and But let's use one of the most significant drivers as an example that all presidents are evaluated on all the time. The economy. Presidents love to take credit and they're quick to pass off the blame on the prior president when it's when the economy is going bad. Geez, for two-thirds of the presidency, Barack Obama was blaming Bush for the economy. And then it was actually kind of funny. The first part of Trump's economy, whether you like him or hate him, the economy was on fire. Uh, he was Obama was trying to take thing credit for things that that were going on after he'd been out of office for two years. Trump did the same thing though. When things kind of went haywire or went bad, he would send out a tweet about how hard it is to fix all of Obama's mistakes. But then if a good economic number came out, he was quick to jump on it and say, well, this one I'm, I want full credit for. But here's just a crazy truth. And many high caliber in-depth studies have looked at presidents and the performance with economy. And the results are interesting. Since World War II, Democrats have actually done better with the economy, higher GDP growth. Yet studies mainly show that this is nothing more than pure luck, not necessarily skill or policy. Funny to think about it, but when someone takes office matters a lot. Taking over a recovering economy, for example, or towards the height of a top makes it very hard. Uh, for example, Bush taking over for Clinton, or if there's a huge oil spike in prior generations like Bush one, or taking over the after the housing collapse, Obama for Bush, uh, means Obama's numbers show very good overall, sort of like buying stock at low uh, versus at a high. If the timing is right, buying low or being inaugurated low gives a great potential to look good in the end in the history books. Another reason the intellectual mind would find the game of being president doomed to fail is the frequent elections in America. There is no such thing as a long-term plan for the economy. Uh, long-term plan for social security, for health care, for national defense, for immigration, for, well, just about anything. As every two years, any plan that a president may be able to actually get put in place could be railroaded or reversed if power switches from the Nazi DNC to the Stalin RNC or vice versa. I want to compare that just for a second to China. I by no means would want that horrific, brutal regime to be what we have here. Yet, if you look at some of the positives, China can put in place a 10-year plan, a 20-year plan, 
a 50-year plan. They can strategize for the long term the direction of where the country wants to go. That is literally impossible anymore in this country because our two political parties are so concerned about getting power, keeping power, that they'll switch everything up on it, on anybody, on the other party, the second they get a chance to do it. Thus, there is no long-term strategies in our country. How can there be? Things are changing constantly for the intellectual, critical thinking, leadership-minded person. It is impossible to solve, say, the $30 trillion national debt crisis in two-year increments, which is when the House of Representatives is up for re-election. So, if, so why even bother trying to put a long-term strategy, invest all of your time and your energy and your effort into something that could be flip-flopped and turned off every two or four years? The game is set, so there is no ability to build or deploy a long-term strategy in this country, which to the critical thinking mind is essential to solving very big, very complicated problems. And when you're the president of the United States, you only have very big and very complicated problems. So very smart people, they tend to involve themselves in things they control. And if we're honest, in general, so many factors are at play. Intellectually astute people don't see politics as the best way to invest their talent and their energy. There's just too many variables. But the second reason is a candidate would not, a highly qualified candidate may not become president or even try to, is the candidate's entire life history is under a microscope. Let me go way back in history. Alexander Hamilton, a towering intellectual figure of the colonial days. He was one of the founding fathers. He wrote the Federalist Papers. He had a huge impact on politics and surely would have loved and actually craved political power. Yet, he had some issues. Most of Hamilton's contemporaries would have probably begrudgingly admitted he was brilliant, as he actually was the first Treasury Secretary. He created our financial system uh, of the of the new nation. He was a prolific writer, political essayists, including those again I mentioned those Federalist Papers, and uh, written in defense of the Constitution. He was one of the early America's most talented lawyers, winning a number of landmark cases. He even helped create the forerunner to the U.S. Customs Department. His accomplishments and talents led to admiration and close friends with a number of prominent figures. He could be incredibly charming, engaging, and witty, but, and here's that but about Hamilton, he had as many enemies as he did friends. He was very cocky. He was very mouthy. He was very self-assured. He was arrogant. He was dismissive. He picked fights all the time with with many of the other founders, which turned increasingly ugly during the rise of partisan politics in the early years of the Republic. Hmm. Do we know any other president who has fit that bill? <coughs> Donald Trump. Uh, his mouth and his personality isn't what knocked him out, though, on his bid for the White House. Instead, it was something else. He was actually involved in one of America's very first political sex scandals. And you can read about this in history. In 1791, he was serving as the Treasury Secretary. And 
the Hamilton was married at the time, but he became involved with a woman. Her name was Maria Reynolds, and she was a young woman, had approached him for financial assistance to escape what she claimed to be an abusive marriage. Soon after, Reynolds' husband, James, confronted Hamilton and basically extorted him, demanding the equivalent in today's money of $25,000 to keep quiet about this affair that had cropped up from this initial contact. I mean, basically it was an extortion scheme and it worked. Hamilton continued to pay the couple money while he continued his relationship with Maria for, you know, another year or so. It's only worse now. Probably most recently seen in the Supreme Court nominations, especially Justice Kavanaugh. A person's history can be scoured back to middle school. Middle school. Now, I don't think it's inappropriate to ask Kavanaugh as an adult and and as an, an older person what he did in his life. I mean, I think that's still fair game. But goodness gracious, they were asking him questions about middle school. Now, if we're all honest with ourselves, is there really nothing ever anywhere in your past that you said or you did that would be unbecoming if it was brought to light? Probably 80% of the people would say, yeah, I was pretty stupid a few times. I, I have some things in my past I would really prefer to never show up in the public well ever. And then there's might be 20% of the people said, no, no, my, my life has nothing. I have nothing to hide ever. I've been honest and ethical and upstanding my, my entire life. Well, that 20% would be lying. So the reality is no matter what great characteristics a person may have, when you're dealing with average to below average corrupt people that are constantly ankle biting their opponents on everything, there are things that we don't that a candidate would not want known to society at large because it would either hurt the person or their family or both. So these things in our past are beyond our control to fix them as we can only control our present. Surely intelligent people use past failures to make corrective actions in the future. But that uncontrollable variable of things that you screwed up in your past, that is an incredibly sharp weapon that's wielded by career politicians when necessary to take or keep power. And many highly intelligent people avoid politics for these very personal attacks that can happen. It just isn't worth it to them. It isn't worth it to their family. The third reason are these Nazi-esque political parties, the RNC and the DNC. They literally require candidates to comply. They require compliance from these elected officials and they even try to demand it from voters. The herd mentality of political parties looking for conformity, not innovation, obscene partisanship, not compromise and solutions, turn many highly intelligent people off to running for office. The non-thinking political party heads care about one thing. They keep it very simple, re-election and power. And everything else comes in second. So every decision becomes not an exercise in making the best choice for the country at large, but what is the best decision for the party to hold or gain power? Smart people don't want anything to do with this. Also, it's obvious to see 
corruption is rampant in D.C., not just the political parties, so we shouldn't just blame them solely, but the alphabet soup of bureaucracy, FBI, CIA, IRS, HSA, all of them. To weed out corruption is no minor task once it's ingrained. Anyone who tries risks severe backlash. To get a Republican Senate judiciary to take on a Democratic case of money flowing to family members through some side scheme or appointment to a board of directors or whatever. Oh, kind of like the Hunter Biden claim. Not that he did it, but at least you could investigate it, right? Uh, Not only puts the person in question on trial, but the backlash towards their own party could be just as swift as their own indiscretions get uncovered so the republicans who could in their senate judiciary look at these things it's kind of like uh throwing a rock at a glass house many of them just let it go the corruption is literally that deep i often wonder how many presidents in a row with an identical mantra and intellect to weed out corruption it would take that the rnc and dnc have embedded into the political establishment of Washington, D.C. How long would it take for them to to pry their their vice grip fingers off of the power that they have? My thoughts would be probably at least two to four two-term presidents. So let's say 16 to 32 years maybe uh, to be able to actually make a dent in this horrific corruption But one thing is for certain, one person, they can't fix the corruption in Washington, D.C. in four years or even eight years. So smart people stay away from this because it's a no-win situation. Finally, as in pretty much every conversation, money. You either, one, must be independently wealthy or two, you need support of the political parties to groom you, to train you, to raise you up, raise up money, and by the end, you're a walking, talking, party-line parrot, speaking machine. To find the right intellectually astute politician that is a billionaire, well, this is rarefied air, as they can run and not compromise their ethics if they have the money, but instead they can run on their own platform and their own plan separate from Washington, D.C. and these corrupt political parties. See, Trump could got away with this. He quite frankly didn't need the RNC to run. And the establishment, they could despise him. And and they did. And they hated him. And they're probably all going to continue to hate him long after he is gone from office. He simply didn't fit the good old boys club of the RNC and surely not the DNC. As politicians are supposed to conform. And he wouldn't. And he didn't need to because financially he could get away with it. But the other option, let's say you're not independently wealthy, is you have to get money from the parties. I mean, we know how much it costs to run for office. These presidential candidates are spending, you know, 250 to 500 million dollars to get elected president. And that just isn't an option for 99.99% of the population. And so they need that funding, that support from the political parties. But the second you take it, well, then sadly, you become a slave to that party. That that free thinking, intellectual, it, it has to be muted 
by the whims and goals of the party. Or if you refuse, there's no more money for you to run. This threat to the political class, whether monetary or endorsement-wise, is incredibly powerful, and a true intellectual could not sacrifice to the inane party-bickering mantra and child's play of the political party. So instead, they stay away. In all of these examples, there really is just one common denominator that unites all these reasons that keep our best and brightest away from the game of politics. Highly successful and smart people tend to focus their energy and effort towards things they have the capacity to control, and they do not let the things they cannot control impact them. This mindset just doesn't fit well in Washington, D.C. The bar is so low, the bickering and corruption are just too high. You know, highly intelligent, smart, rational thinking people, they see the limited power of the president, the dredging of their entire life history, the herd conformity demanded by the political parties, the corruption, the money required to gain the position as things which make the investment of time not worthy of the occupation and the ability to achieve the objective not attainable. Thus we're left, sadly, most of the time with narcissistic, corrupt, conformists, or people with that cockroach level ability to survive in the swamp for decades. You know who I'm talking about. The Nancy Pelosi's, the Chuck Schumer's, the Mitch McConnell's, and sadly, even the Joe Biden's of the world. Look, I, I'm not... You may wanted him to be president. You either loved him and hated Trump or or maybe you just hated Trump and wanted Biden. If, if you voted for Joe Biden, I don't mean to offend you. But look, he's been in Washington, D.C. for 40 plus years. And you don't work in Washington, D.C. for 20, 30 or 40 plus years by being an outspoken, innovative leader for the people, a revolutionary advocate for change. You survive in Washington, D.C. by being a partisan political hack. This is the world of Washington, D.C. These type of people, they are not the best. They're not the brightest. They're not the most ethical. But they are the ones that are well suited for a life of politics. We are a long ways away from Aristotle's view of the political life being one of the most noble of undertakings. We're not even close. Highly intelligent people can see the landscape of politics and they simply don't want anything to do with it. They see the rules of the game and they choose not to play it. It isn't because we don't have brilliant minds with strong character and amazing leadership skills in America. The problem is the RNC and DNC and the modern American quote-unquote democracy, if we can still call it that, isn't looking for brilliance and change. Washington, D.C. is quite happy, thank you very much, with conformity and walking the straight line. Conformity, this does nothing but breed stagnation which ultimately leads to corruption. And like weeds spread in a garden, they keep duplicating themselves and it becomes nearly impossible to get rid of them all. So back to that initial question my student posed in class. Why are the candidates we get to choose for president so dumb, old, and pathetic? I would say most importantly, smart, intelligent, critical thinking, open-minded, selfless leaders, they don't belong in Washington, D.C., 
because nobody wants that level of intellect or free thinking near them. The political parties want sheep, conformists, followers, not leaders. And that is the mentality that ends up staying there in jobs in Washington, D.C. for 20 to 50 years, doing the laughable quote-unquote work for the people. This problem speaks volumes, not about the lack of intellectual power that I don't know if we can say millions, but hundreds of thousands of highly qualified, highly articulate, highly intelligent Americans, powerful leaders who've been through all kinds of things. It's not speaking volumes about that. What it's speaking volumes of is how far we have fallen and how the two political parties have killed our democracy and the ability to raise forth great leaders. You know me. I've argued repeatedly from what I see right now in Washington, D.C., our democracy is already dead. We're just living a delusion and don't quite realize it yet. So the smart, intelligent stay away, far, far away from the sinking Titanic known as American democracy, while the political parties, like in the movie Titanic, do you remember that scene as the boat, as the as the ship is starting to go under the water? Those political parties are, are that band playing such sweet music as the ship sinks below the ocean. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. I hope you found value. The quality of our politicians is degrading right along with the system as a whole. Why are our politicians so bad now? Well, the thinkers are gone and the conformist scammers and swamp survivors rule. It's a sad state of affairs, but that's the answer to the question. Remember, I generally publish new podcasts every Monday and Wednesday, so if you click like or follow, you're going to be alerted when new episodes come available. Until the next episode, I hope you have a wonderful week.